Amen. First Kings chapter 2 this evening. We will begin at verse 13. Insurgents, that's the title of this evening's consideration. Looking back at verse 12, where we left off last session, then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Those uh, words, of course, tell us God is with Solomon. But the agenda has been handed to him by his father, at least an agenda. And as we read last session, uh, Solomon was to get rid of Shemaiah and Joab and show kindness to Barzillai. But there was no further mention of Adonijah, who will set in motion uh, everything Solomon needs to do or the, the conditions for him to purge his kingdom of these insurgents. He was very patient uh, in his favor. And uh, James chapter 1, verse 4, Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And we see that implemented uh, this evening. <clears throat> so looking at verse 13, and one other thing to add, we may not have Solomon's resources in dealing with those who would do us harm and overthrow our faith, but we have the same God, and that means everything. Verse 13, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. Well, she's not happy to see him uh, because of what he tried to do. But there was probably a family history going on. These were wives-in-law, Hagith and Bathsheba. And I don't say that uh, in a way that uh, applauds or compliments that practice. In fact, it's meant to expose it. But the sleazy keep us uneasy. And he is sleazy, and she is uneasy about him showing up, wanting a conversation. Because, again, his plot, his ambitions, which he is going to stand by, they, they threaten to, to kill her and her son Solomon had they succeeded. Um, verse 14, moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. <clears throat> she said, say it. She could have said, I don't want to hear anything you have to say to me. But she doesn't. She's very ladylike in this. Uh, or maybe she's saying, well, you know, whatever you say to me in her head, I'm going to tell to my son. So maybe, I don't know. Well, we'll see. Because there are some enigmas in this. We're not, it's a little perplexing, her role in all of this. Verse 15, then he said, you know that the kingdom was mine, and all Israel had set their expectations on me, that I should reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from Yahweh. Well, the three E's apply to him, egotistical, in this section, what he's saying. He's, it's egotistical. He's embellishing it, and it's an exaggeration, an embellished exaggeration. Uh, that's uh, really what's going on here. 
But if we contrast, he makes this statement, you know the kingdom was mine, and all Israel set their expectations on me. There is the embellishment. It is an exaggeration, and it is egotistical. And when we contrast uh, the two celebrations that we did last session, verse 41 of chapter 1 in 1 Kings, now Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it, that is the noise of David's of Solomon's celebration, uh, as they finished eating, when Joab heard the sound of the horn, he said, why is the city in such a noisy uproar? Well, because you're coronating Adonijah's not in an uproar, by contrast, it's rather dull. And you read verses 38 to 40, and you see that what was, what was happening with Solomon being made king, he's riding on the king's mule uh, through the city, the people see this. The priest is there. He takes the horn out of oil and anoints him. And there's the cheering. Verse 40, and all the people went up after him. And the people played the flutes, rejoiced with great joy, so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. So when Adonijah says, well, all the people had their expectation on me. Well, it doesn't look that way. Solomon, Adonijah, he had an open-air meal for his guests. And that was pretty much it. Solomon, it was an open-air festival, part one, with, it, with no need to feed the attendees, incidentally. He says that I should reign. He refuses to let this go. Uh, he's dismissed his own words about God wanting David. He'll just sidestep that. But he, he's saying, I got cheated out of the election. Well, elect people do cheat in elections. But sometimes uh, they don't, and Solomon did not. At least they don't get away with it all the time. And his statement, this very statement in itself, is treasonous. He's saying Solomon shouldn't be king, I should be king. And he's telling Solomon's mother. This is a, it, it, the man is out of his mind. He is a serious threat to the throne. And uh, he is not to be trusted. However, the kingdom, he says here in verse 15, has been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. So this is laced with resentment towards God and everybody else. He admits that God is against him being king, yet he insists that he should be king because the people liked him. Incidentally, the church at Laodicea, the word Laodicea means of the people. It was a people-run church, and it made the Lord nauseous. It was not a God-run church. He himself has appointed some to be. And he goes down the list of leaders. And that church in Laodicea did not care about the messenger of the church leading the church. They led the church. And yet still Christ addresses the messenger to the messenger of the church at Laodicea, which would be, of course, the pastor. So uh, here, he doesn't care what, what God's view is. Self-exaltation, it produced arrogance, and that arrogance produced madness. He's delusional. Just looking at his words here in verse 15, he, over, you know, he contradicts himself. Or at least he says right out, I believe in God. I believe God made his will known. I don't like it. I'm going to go against it. Something's wrong with somebody like that. It's a special kind of fool. He doesn't even care that he's scoffing at the woman's son. Your son should not be on the throne. I should be there. To her face. 
self-superiority has no shame because it has no conscience. In verse 16, now I ask one petition of you, do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. Again, she's either patient or she's going to say whatever you want. I'm telling my boy and you're going to get it. Uh, I, there might be some of that. I, I think it takes a twist, though. Uh, early stages, she might have been like, you are going to get it. But I think there's a change coming. She doesn't see this request. Um, verse 16, when he says, I ask one petition of you. She doesn't know what that is, of course. And he says, do not deny me. That's not a good way to ask somebody to do something for you. But his lower self, feeling cheated, uh, he has become his lower self. There's no fight any longer. And humans that are out for themselves make life difficult for everybody else around them. Verse 17, then he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag, the Shulamite, Shunamite here, as wife. In other words, all of you are too ignorant and or too weak to see what I'm up to. I mean, this is a bodacious request. Almost anybody else in the kingdom could have made such a request, and it would not have been what is coming from this man. And this is not the first time a woman has been used to approach or win over a man. Now, one, I'll give you three. One of them good, two bad. Well, of course, Satan approached Eve to get to Adam. He knew better not to go right to Adam. Samson's wife. The Philistines went through her. Samson said, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. And then there was the woman of Tekoa that Joab sent to David to overturn David's harsh, uh, harshness towards uh, Absalom. So this is not uncommon to this day, but here it is. He's going to the mom. He's not going right to Solomon because he knew that would jeopardize his life. They'd see right through it. And he's so, again, delusional. He actually thinks that Solomon's going to say, sure, mom, whatever you want, even if it burns down the kingdom. The kings who succeed to the throne, they have control and possession over the previous king's Wives and harem. Uh, this, even the Lord mentions this to David in 2 Samuel 12. I gave you your masters in, 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 in part of the judgment coming from through Nathan. So they controlled the destiny of these women. Like it or not, this is the way it was. And uh, since Adonijah, again, once attempted to seize the throne, his request represents a serious threat to the throne. And she should see this. At least I think she, she does. I don't want to get ahead of myself because there's much to say about her. True, David never consummated the marriage to Abishag, but that's an irrelevant technicality. There are other factors. And still, the king, Solomon in this case, would have retained control. Just one of the factors is Abishag was privy to kingdom business. And the confidentiality would have been a concern, especially with someone who wants to, be, uh, to overthrow the throne. Uh, even today, corporate secretaries, big corporations, uh, they have confidentiality agreements. They can't quit and just go to the competitor and, and start sharing, well, let me tell you what, I was sitting in the meeting and this happened. 
He says that he may give me Abishag the Shulamite as wife, the gall of this man. <laughs> so he pretends to want Abishag, it seems, as some compensation to not getting the throne. Of course, that's not what's going on. He's blinded by his arrogance, and that arrogance gave birth to a, a maddening pride. It's the same situation that we find with Satan. Pride ruined Saul. Pride ruined Nebuchadnezzar. Pride ruined Satan. All of these, uh, the arrogance, this, this level of arrogance, it makes people stupid and destructive. At the same time, it's a real thing. We face it in life and we just blow it off to them. That person's nuts. Well, there's a spiritual story in back of those things. Uh, it, again, Arrogance, this self-exaltation to the extreme. It, it made Satan insane in the spiritual realm. Isaiah 14, I will exalt my, I will exalt my, I will exalt. And in his case, he's going to exalt with, over God. Because if you can exalt to be equal with God, you are exalting over, you are challenging him. Well... It made, as I mentioned uh, already, King Nebuchadnezzar insane in the physical realm. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's talking to himself. He says, <clears throat> soliloquy, Great Babylon, this is great Babylon, that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power, and for the honor of my majesty. And as we know, why the words were coming out of his mouth, he was smitten with insanity. And they drove him from men. So the Bible is telling us with these historical accounts, he's saying, watch out for this behavior. And if you find it in another, uh, maybe you can be used to give some word in season. Verse 18, so Bathsheba said very well, I will speak to you for the king. You asked for it. I'll do it. Now, would it be naive to think that she was ignorant of the protocols of the king's harem? Yes. She knew the protocols of a king's harem. She was in that harem. And she knew she couldn't just say, well, you know, my husband's dead. Maybe I'll just take a stroll down the street and just marry whoever. I mean, she just, there were restrictions. And she knew those restrictions. She would have counseled other women. Maybe she thought Abishag was a strange case. Again, the marriage was really not consummated. And so, of course, she had, she, she's not a court lawyer. She, it was not her place to go this far. She should have just told Absalom, you go ask him. I'm, you're not using me. So why is she doing this? She knew he's a walking time bomb. She had to have known that this could precipitate in his death if her son didn't approve. I think one possibility is she saw an opportunity to be a peacemaker through matchmaking. As she, in verse 21, will refer to Adonijah as Solomon's brother. She doesn't have to say it that way. It's recorded that way. And I think these things are on purpose. And I think that maybe if she, you know, if he married Abishag, there would be this, you know, peace, this lessening of tensions between the brothers and the whole family. Um, <clears throat> she should not have taken, uh, read into that like this way. Here's an interesting question. How did the historian 
get his hands on this dialogue. She doesn't have a court-appointed scribe to write down the, the, the conversations that she engages in. I think she had to have told, retold this to Solomon and uh, making it into the court records now. And the historian uh, takes the dialogue from those records and he writes it into the first person of the dialogue. Or, or maybe possibly another thought is, you know, there are witnesses in the court and they could have just preserved the, the exchange. But at some point, her dialogue with Adonijah makes it into the story, and, and that is how I think it happened. The historian gets it right from the, the court records, which is not far-fetched at all, you know, as the Bible has already told us in several places that there were men who were writing autobiographies uh, and autobiographies. So not a far-fetched thing at all. Well, people, they weren't stupid. They were just like us. Well, yeah, well if they were, then maybe they weren't. <laughs> anyway, uh, Those things intrigue me because I want to know, how did it happen? Uh, Sometimes it's spiritual. Moses had uh, spiritual revelations. Uh, God told Moses things that he otherwise could, no one could have known. And then then there's this blend of the oral traditions that make it from one generation to another. So none of that um, is uh, disturbing to me. Verse 19, Bathsheba, therefore, went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her, verse 19, and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand. What a good son. There's such respect for his mother. She comes in. He gets up off the throne. He bows to her, this gesture of deference, and she's receiving his mom. And he, he brings a throne to, for her to sit right next to him. It's the, uh, the seat of the highest honor. Probably there's no one else in the kingdom he'd do that for. Barzillai could come in and he'd just bring him a chair, but he's not sitting next to me. The resurrected Lord Jesus is often described as seating, seated at the right hand of God. And so this is a, just a very honorable thing. Uh, what we have when she starts talking, again, I think the historian just leaves it out of this section of the story, and he's already prefaced the story with that dialogue between Adonijah and Bathsheba. So here in verse 20, then she said, no, I'm going to pause there. When they don't do that, when they repeat it again, and we're reading the Bible, we say, why did you make me read all this twice? You said that in verses 5 and 6. Why do I got to read it nine more times? So here he spares us that, and we should applaud it. If I am right, and I'm usually right in my world. Verse 20, then she said, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, did you get that from Adonijah? No, he he said, ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. Well, I mean, we're learning just from that. Don't don't write checks, you know, with your mouth that you're... you, you can't produce. Your body can't keep. Uh, <clears throat> he should have said, well, let's hear what you have to say first. Uh, you someone who says, can you do me a favor? Maybe. It depends on what it is. I don't know what you're going to ask. And what I know of you, it's going to be kooky. Uh, anyway, some of you may be offended by that. And that would be an admission of you being kooky and you know it. So anyway, don't be offended. That's like 
saying, will the ugly people in the room stand up? I mean, nobody should stand up. Anyway, uh, so he's thinking, I don't know, you know, what does mom want? Does she want to throw a party? Does she want a new chariot with those dual overhead nimbats? Um, I, you know, what does she want? <laughs> On one hand, since the king's harems were seriously guarded, and everybody knew it, I, again, I have difficult, difficulty believing that she was naive and did not know the severity of his request. On the other hand, as I mentioned, I can see her saying, well, you know, technically Abishag wasn't the wife of David, and maybe if this will bring peace, I can see her doing that also until Solomon points it out. It's going to be one of those, well, I didn't see that. (laughs) Verse 21. So she said, let Abishag, the Shulamite, be given to Adonijah, your brother's wife. Now, going back to my thought that she is trying to bring peace through matchmaking, it wouldn't be the last time in history that uh, people have wanted peace so much that they have become blind to reason. It's, it's actually quite frequent. We see it in Genesis 34 with the men of Shechem and the sons of, of Jacob and his daughter Dinah. They, uh, you know... he. Shechem wanted to marry her after violating her. And the son said, okay, here are our terms, which essentially rendered the men defenseless physically. And, of course, Levi and Simeon went in and slaughtered them. But there, Shechem, he wanted peace so badly after violating Jacob's daughter. He wanted peace so badly, willing to do anything. And the whole village went with him. It cost them their lives. Neville Chamberlain, World War II. I've got the treaty with Hitler. You've got no reason to believe that guy. Who, who wears a mustache like that? And uh, anyway, we know what happened. And fortunately for Neville, he then backed up Churchill, uh, so he didn't remain blind to, to the truth. Uh, but many uh, Jews today, they want peace so badly that they just, you know, they support anti-Semitic politicians, and you scratch your heads, and what is wrong with you people? I remember speaking with a cab driver in Jerusalem, and he said, oh, this Obama's going to be great. He, the, the guy does, he's anti-Semitic. Don't you know? Do you listen to what he says? Yeah, but he's going to bring peace. No, he's not. Anyway, so my point is, uh, this is not far-fetched to think that uh, someone may just want to bring peace so badly that they become blind to the facts and to reason, and they end up in a situation like this. Fortunately for her, Solomon is no fool. Uh, we know that Abishag is never referred to as David's wife in Scripture or said to be a concubine, but we know her role. <clears throat> uh, but then on the other side, none of the concubines were named at all, so... Uh, the legal technicality, as I mentioned, but too close to home for anybody to miss what an, an insurrectionist could do if he could uh, get, gain this in the public eye. And, and that's what, you know, Adam, the people wanted me anyway, so he's very conscious of his public relations. Uh, if, he wants, if he's got a shot at the throne. Um, as I mentioned also, had anyone else asked, it would not have been such a great concern. 
what is clear is that in the eyes of the people, uh, Abishag was not available to him, regardless of the technicalities. If the Song of Solomon is a true story or based on Abishag, then uh, because the marriage was not consummated, she could be given to another, as the Shulamite in Song of Solomon was eventually given to the beloved shepherd and not the king. So uh, a rival could not, he did not have that that privilege. And that's what's going on behind a lot of this verse. uh, and, And if I were Solomon, I would say, I don't need any of that. I don't like the guy. He's trying to kill me. And he stepped over the line. I gave him a chance, and that's it. You guys can argue about what mom knew and what, <laughs> what everybody else knew, but that's it. So verse, verse 22, And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, <clears throat> Now why do you ask Abishag, the Shulam, Shunammite, for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. For him and for uh, Abiathar, the priest, and for Joab, the son of Zariah. So she says, ask the throne for Adonijah and the priest who was in part of, you know, that uh, insurrection along with Joab. Well, just ask it for them. Mom, what are you doing? Kind of a moment. Now, I didn't say in verse 21 where she says, let Abishag, the Shunammite, be given to Adonijah. And then it's added, your brother. That's one of the uh, clues that I think belong to her desire to bring peace. But when Solomon points this out, he takes her back, and she probably wasn't too into the politics. She knew about it. How could you not being part of the palace? But um, when he points it out, we don't read of her protesting, and I don't think she did. But I also think that Solomon tempers his rage in his tone towards her. I would love to see the look on her face when she realized, ooh, that dude is dead. Uh, But Uh, I think he's being very gentle with her, but inwardly, he's firm. He knows what he's going to do. This guy's got to go. And those were the terms that he had established with Adonijah when he spared him the first time. Uh, He never lost sight of these guys. That's why he's bringing up Joab and Abiathar, because they were part of the the party that looked to uh, plot against him being king. Um, Had they prevailed, as I mentioned, it would have meant death. Exile, at the least, that would have been a form of death. These were the highest-ranking loyalists to Adonijah, disloyal to David's will and God's will in Joab and Abiathar, the the high priest, co-high priest with Zadok. We can almost hear them, Abiathar and Joab, telling Adonijah, well, David's almost, you know, he's not many days, okay? They made Solomon king, just hang in there. After David passes, we'll get you back in. Uh, Solomon had his spy network, and it was a- active, and he knew who was still not with him, and these two men, were, they were part of the, the, those individuals. Verse 23, Then King Solomon swore by Yahweh, saying, May God do so to me and more also if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now, the mom may be gone by this point. Well, she may still be there to hear it. But likely she's, mom, you know, just ask the kingdom for these guys. They're up to no good. What your request is, is is just going to, is awful for us. And she's probably gone at this point. Uh, Maybe not, not an important thing. But um, 
He knows it's a veiled attempt to overthrow his throne that God has established. We started off reading that in verse 12. Verse 52 of chapter 1, we read about Solomon's treatment of Adonijah, which is a lesson for us. How do you handle somebody that's done done you wrong, and yet there's an opportunity to forgive and give them another chance? Well, verse 52, chapter 1, 1 Kings, Then Solomon said, If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. He's going to die now because wickedness is found in him. It's perceived that way because it is that way. And, uh, you know, looking for the Bible to come out and say, and Adonijah was up to no good. The Bible sometimes tells us that, but many times it just tells you the story and says, come on, you're smart. You can figure this out. You know where this is going. And it's gotten a lot of men in trouble to overanalyze you, and that's a trap. You, you know, you can so analyze the Greek and the Hebrew, looking for what you think you, you should find, to where you're now missing the story. And there are people that don't do that, uh, take it to that level, and they read the story, and they walk away knowing, I know what that means. I don't, I don't need a theologian to tell me what that means. And we all have to guard against uh, getting in trouble from too much study. Knowledge puffs up, love edifies. It's a good thing to remember. And, uh, you know, when, when here you have Paul, the theologian, said, I speak in tongues every day because I get into spirit because I don't trust me. It's the Lord I want. And then you'll have other theologians today come along. I don't believe tongues anymore. Well, to each their own. Um, anyhow, verse 24. Um, I read that verse, didn't I? Anybody say yes? No, I did not. Okay. Shaking the heads is better because I can't hear a word uh, from up here. Anyway, uh, verse 24. Now, therefore, as Yahweh lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David, my father, who has established a house for me, as promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. (laughs) No nonsense. He wasn't given an inch on this. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, was she think? Oops! What was you know? If she was there still, what was she thinking? I think he again spared her the court stuff and just okay, mom, have a nice day. And once the door closed, like oh, that guy. <laughs> so, uh, if Solomon, what if Solomon ignored this offense? Well, it would suggest he was a weak king, and it would have continued. Such weakness would have been an encouragement, not only for Adonijah. But Shemaiah, Shemaiah wanted a Benjamin, a Benjamite to be king. He wanted a, a, a dynasty to be of Benjamin. He felt that Saul was wrongfully, you know, replaced with a, a man from Judah named David, a shepherd boy. He was, uh, you know, he, he never let this go. And that's why he's going to get it too. But Shemaiah wasn't supporting Adonijah. Shemaiah had his own plans. So this is the intrigue that goes with a kingdom. Verse 25, so King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, and he died. Um, He would not live to put Solomon through what Absalom put David through. And that was part of David's, you know, telling Solomon that there are people in the kingdom that you you can't let them live. They're going to hurt you. 
And even though he does, David does not name his son Adonijah, it's the same principle, and Solomon acts on it. Verse 26, And to Abiathar, the priest, the king said, <clears throat> Go to Anath, to your fields, for you are deserving of death, but I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord Yahweh before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was. Anath is about three miles from Jerusalem, and centuries later, Jeremiah will be born there. Jeremiah was a priest also. It was a priest town. But so he's banished from Jerusalem. He is removed as co-high priest. David likely kept him as high priest with Zadok because David felt responsible for the death of uh, Abiathar's father and all the priests that were there at Nob with Saul chasing him. And so it was an uncomfortable situation. But on the bright side, Abiathar was faithful. He brought the Urim and the Thunim to David. He remained with him. As Solomon points out, <clears throat> when my father suffered on the run from Saul, you were right there with him. When Absalom turned on my father David, you were right there with him. And so Absalom, uh, Solomon takes these things into account. He's, again, not a wild man, as um, some kings are and have been, I should say. Uh, but he um, also did not lose sight of the fact that Adonijah's ploy to take the throne involved this priest, who was a descendant of Eli. Abiathar is a descendant of Eli. Eli was the priest, uh, the judge and high priest before Samuel comes along. And God sent an unnamed prophet to Eli to pass judgment on him and say that uh, his family would not be leading uh, the, the priesthood, that that was part of the judgment. And it was a hundred years or so passed since, since that judgment. Eli wouldn't correct his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, for the wickedness they were carrying out uh, there in the temple. And so the judgment was to remove him and his family, his line, uh, and this is what is going on here. A hundred years before that was fulfilled. Verse 27, So Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest to Yahweh, that he might fulfill the word of Yahweh, which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. And so there is the connection. Verse 28, then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of Yahweh and took hold of the horns of the altar. <clears throat> well, yes, he, Joab allied himself with, allied himself with Adonijah when that insurrection was put down. Solomon, of course, had... Surveillance maintained on these people through his spy network. This is why he's going to bring Shemaiah into Jerusalem. So you're going to live in Jerusalem now because i got to keep an eye on you. So what we're getting is this, he's no dummy. He's, he's really, he's doing everything right. These, these, it's these other men that are, are wrong. And Joab knows he's guilty by association, by being associated with 
um, Adonijah. There's no record of him coming. He wasn't that kind of man of coming to Solomon and saying, okay, I made a mistake. You've got my allegiance now. Uh, Joab just wasn't that kind of man. Uh, Loyalty may end in death, but disloyalty ends in destruction. And that's, again, I think another lesson that comes from the pages of Scripture. We see that in Judas Iscariot. We see that in the apostles. Their loyalty ended in their deaths, from almost all of them, as far as we know. But with Judas, it just was destruction. And he went to the place of destruction. It says here in verse 28, though he had not defected to Absalom. Well, again, his loyalty to David was not extended to David's choice, which is so disappointing, is it not? I mean, here's Benaniah, and he's just, a David, Solomon, as I was with your father, I'm going to be with you. But Joab didn't take that route. Uh, he said, I'm not going to, you know, sign over for, for him. Why? I thought you were loyal to David. If you were loyal to David, then you would have been loyal to David's choice Under in this situation with all the other factors of Samuel's anointing and just uh, uh, the Nathan the prophet, this uh, was something that is inexcusable on Joab's behalf. But there's other things, and they're going to be dealt with. It says here at the bottom of verse 28, So Joab fled to the tabernacle of Yahweh, took hold of the horns of the altar. Yeah, because he knew that if, at, uh, you know, if Adonijah blew it, and was executed for it, he was going to be implicated. To which altar he fled to, not certain. Probably the tent there in Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant was, a sacrificial altar could have been there, the temple not yet being built. Also a a bigger altar was uh, in Gibeon, which we'll get to in a few chapters when, uh, well, next chapter actually. Anyway, uh, he knew his blood guilt. He knew that he had killed men and had uh, dodged justice, verse 29. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of Yahweh. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go strike him down. Verse 30. So Benaniah went to the tabernacle of Yahweh, that is a tent, and said to him, thus says the king, come out. And he said, no. But I will die here. And Benaniah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. <laughs> I mean, come out so I can kill you. No. I mean, this makes sense. But it was, you know, the saying, you can't fight City Hall. You just, you know, you're going to die, Joab. I mean, there's no way around this. Um, Benaniah, very godly man. So he gets to, to the to the tabernacle, and he pauses. He just is not reckless like that, even though he is the son of a priest, which means he is in the Aaronic line. First Chronicles 27, third captain of the army. For the third month was Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. So if anybody could execute him in the temple, it would be a man like Benaniah. God had allowed, if you were guilty of manslaughter, not murder, if you unintentionally killed someone, you could run to the horns of the altar and claim asylum. 
Well, Joab, he is guilty of killing two men, and it was murder, not manslaughter, and that's what Solomon's going to use against him. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I just want to go to my office sometimes and just let it out and then come back. So, commercials would be good for, you know, sermons. We're going to a commercial, and then everybody could fix their hair. Uh, anyway, uh, verse 31 Then the king said to him, do as he said, and strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. Well, Solomon wanted to be clear. He wanted everyone to know that this was justice, that there were reasons to take care of this guy. Now, in our thinking, we said, well, the statute of limitations, you should have done it, and well, there's no such thing with, with these these chaps. Uh, this was uh, something God upheld when he said to David, there's sin in the land in Second Samuel 21, and you've got to go deal with it because it's a sin that Saul committed against the Gideonites, and you need to go take care of this. And David did. Well, this is similar to that. Uh, Joab was deserving of death for a long time, and um, judgment was delayed, but it is here now. Verse 32 So Yahweh will return his blood on his head because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he and killed them with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. So he explains why asylum is not granted to Joab and he needs to do this he, he's protecting the throne. He's letting everybody know, I am a just king. Now, he's not always going to be just and fair, Solomon. And, and he's going to do several things that are just wrong. One that we forget about is he's going to tax the people to no end. And that's going to be a problem for Rehoboam, his successor, who is also his son. But uh, anyway... Uh, Joab's crimes demanded justice. And Solomon wants it in the official court records. My dad did not know that Joab killed these people who were Benjamites. And he didn't need any more trouble from the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin which, why is he going to do, why he deals with Shemaiah in a moment. <clears throat> what is the use of us learning these things? Well, because it's people. What, am, what is my reaction going to be if I'm in a similar, though less intense, situation? There are lessons all over. They're just abound in the Scriptures. Verse 33. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace, be peace forever from Yahweh. There's more Solomon's view, it seems, than God's judgment, what he's speaking here. Um, I have that opinion because David, the facts don't agree with him. The, after Solomon died, there was really not much peace after that. And David's descendants on the throne, if you look at the long term, yeah, in the, in the millennial reign, there will be peace forever with Christ, who is connected with the throne of David, of course. Uh, we have no information that God granted this curse upon Joab's family. So I'm thinking this is just, you know, Solomon's just pouring it out, but is not pouring it out in the spirit. And we have no indication that he is. 
Uh, anyway, uh, verse 34. So Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck and killed him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Now, he wasn't buried in the house, turned the house into a mausoleum, <clears throat> but that's in his own land. It was an honorable um, uh, burial granted to him despite the execution. But such an ignoble end for such a commander, hero, war veteran of Israel. It's just, why does it have to go this way, Joab? Well, it was Joab's choice. He felt he was above the law, he was bloodthirsty, and he would suffer no wrong. Some people don't suffer fools. You know, if you have a person that just likes to yeah, 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 no, the person, I'm not listening to that, and they just can be kind of mean. Uh, but Joab, he, he was the kind of guy, he'd kill you if, if, he, would, if, you, if he felt wrong. He lived by the sword, he died by the sword. And here's the interesting thing. David's son Absalom was killed by Joab against David's commandment, against David's instructions. David said, be gentle with him. And Joab said, yeah, right. And he, he skewed him to death. Joab, on the other hand, was killed by David's son on commandment or instruction from David. And interesting, these um, these. Uh, ironic twist of events that show up in Scripture. And when they show up, there's a lesson there. Verse, uh, sometimes it's just for us to ponder. And there's a lot of work done when we meditate on Scripture. And David knew that. He baked it into Psalm 1, that he would meditate on the law of the Lord. And Paul upholds it when he tells Timothy to meditate on the Scriptures. It is not that Eastern meditation where they're trying to Remember something, you keep saying um, uh, and the mantras, it's not that stuff. It's just giving a mental attention, thinking it through. Verse 35, the king put Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, in the place over the army, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. So Zadok's family will retain that position. Verse 36, <clears throat> then the king sent and called to Shemaiah, and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem, and dwell there, and do not go out from there anywhere. Because he's not harmless. Shemaiah is an insurgent. He is, his heart is against Solomon. Uh, Solomon is taking non-lethal steps to marginalize Shemaiah. He's saying to him, You know who you are, and I know who you are. You know you're a threat to me, and I know you're a threat to me. So let's do this. Rather than you stay out in the tribe of Benjamin and try to you know, gain some tribal support and spread through Israel and cause an insurrection, rather than do that, why don't you stay in Jerusalem where I can keep an eye on you? And as long as you do that, you'll be okay. Sort of your city of refuge. Evidently, Shemaiah knows it has no, no, no objection. He knows it's right. What's he going to say? Oh, not me. The Solomon is, you know, just clobber that. Now you're lying to the king. Verse 37, for it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron. Know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood shall be on your own head. <clears throat> Verse 38. And Shemaiah said to the king, the saying is good. As my lord, the king has said. So your servant will do. So Shemaiah dwelt in Jerusalem many days. 
I mean, guys like this, you think that, you know, they know what right is. They know what's best for the kingdom. Maybe they have a few drinks or something, and all of a sudden now, they, they're, they're saying things they should never say, and they're saying it to other people, and, and then it's stirring up trouble, and then it, when they're sober even, it starts flaring up more and more until finally there's the attempt to, to do something wrong. Uh, and this is the human nature that... Solomon was faced with, and, and so are we. Verse 38, Shemaiah said to the king, the saying is good. Um, verse 39, now it happened at the end of three years that two slaves of Shemaiah ran away to Achish, the son of Maka, king of Gath. And they told Shemaiah, saying, look, your, servant, your slaves are in Gath. He kind of, ooh, your servants have gone. What are you going to do now? I don't think it was that, but kind of make a car- caricature of it. Uh, even his servants didn't care for him. Uh, so they leave and go to the Philistines. This, uh, verse 40, So Shemaiah saddled his donkey and went to Achish at Gath to seek his slaves. And Shemaiah went and brought his slaves from Gath. And of course, the spy network knows this and going to tell Solomon. This Achish here is either the son or the grandson of the king Achish that David was made friends with uh, when David was going, when he feigned insanity and he drooled all over. Then he came back and he was going to line up with the Philistines against Saul and they, they chased him away. So this is um, <clears throat> where Shemaiah fled to retrieve his servants. Uh, He was the kind of guy that Shemaiah just did not respect agreements or rules. An oath was only good to him as long as he wanted it to be good. There are people like this. He he just felt he was the exception. Uh, He was justified in doing this. Uh, They're my slaves. Yeah, but that's not the oath. That's not the agreement. When you pass that brook, you're going to die. And his yeah butts are going to get him killed. Uh, he felt he was justified. If he was justified, he could break the law. And he pushed the limits of the law. There are people like this. They just push the law. And we applaud when finally they get busted. I'm like, man, I was hoping somebody would do something to that guy. We have a whole buzzard's next nest of them up 95. They all huddle up there and... Anyway, let's not, let's not open that up. So, um, uh, people like him, pushing the limits always. I had a mentor from my teens to my early 20s, and he used to say, contracts exist because of the people's will to fail. And he's right. I mean, that's why you drew up a contract. Well, we're going to have to hold you to this. And even then, then you just find yourself a good lawyer, right? And he can undo it magically. Uh, anyhow, there be, the Bible is clear in Isaiah for one, Isaiah 11. When the Lord comes to judge, he's not going to judge like a man. You won't be able to say, well, yeah, but uh, there will be none of that. He'll know everything and he'll flash it up before you. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Uh, some will do it with great joy. That will be us. And others will, will do it unto condemnation. Verse 41 And Solomon was told that Shemaiah had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. And see, there's the spy network. 
And uh, then the king sent and called for Shemaiah and said to him, and some again pronounce his name Shemaiah. It's just hard to pronounce all these Hebrew names in these formal ways. And you know who I'm talking about because you're reading it. <clears throat> and he said to him, did I not make you swear by Yahweh and warn you saying, know for certain that on the day you go and travel anywhere, you shall surely die. And you said to me, the word I have heard is good. Again, he didn't want this insurgent off the grid for a moment. How does he know that's all he did? And what if he, does, if he doesn't deal with this? He's going to just do it again. Solomon is justified in what he does. Verse 43. Why then have you not kept the oath of Yahweh and the commandment that I gave you? Then the king said to Shemaiah, you know, as your heart acknowledges all the wickedness that you did to my father, therefore Yahweh will return your wickedness on your head. In other words, we all know you're a creep. You're just the kind of guy that throws rocks at David when he's down, and if it weren't for Abishai, which everybody would have known by now, you'd have been dead a long time ago. David comes back, from defeating Absalom, you meet him with a thousand men as if to say, okay, David, I was wrong. Please don't hurt me. I'm on your side now. You can trust me. And, of course, what's David going to do? Just, no, we're going to kill you. I mean, they just, they were not like that. The wicked kings were. Uh, we'll get to some of those as we go through the books of kings. We're going to get to a lot of them. We're going to get sick of hearing about them. Uh, that's going to be ha happening. Can you give us a psalm? Uh, anyway... Uh, rules, you know the saying, rules are meant to be broken. Yeah, well, there are consequences to that. He broke the oath with the wrong person, and he suffered it. And this isn't legalism. This is the law. Uh, uh, this is a king ruling a, a, his kingdom and dealing with insurgents, and it's all correct. It's all right. Verse uh, but we Christians, we read this, we learn about, you know, what took place, and we have to process it through grace. That doesn't mean give passes and excuses and forgive everybody for what they do no matter what. Uh, that's antinomianism. That is lawlessness. Uh, it's a learning the balance of the two. Uh, and that for that, we need discernment, and God has promised to give us discernment, and he gives it to us. Be careful we don't read too much into things. <laughs> you know, we're, we're so sometimes so hungry for a miracle. We, we, we just mess it up. And a miracle does not need... It's not a miracle if you've got to push it up the hill. So, <laughs> like, uh, anyway, verse 45. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before Yahweh forever. So, he purges the kingdoms. And um, verse 46... So the king commanded Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. And thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Well, those two runaway slaves are having a good day. They're <laughs> delighted. The guy was, man, he was terrible. There's nothing, again, Shemaiah is the kind of guy, the only thing admirable remotely about him was when he said, okay, it's a good deal, king, you're right, I'll stay in Jerusalem. That's it. So the Bible is loaded with characters that 
we are relieved to see leave this life. It is just loaded. They're all over the place. Like, man, I'm glad that guy is gone. I mean, who was, who was sad at Goliath being killed? Like, oh, man, I wanted to see him do some damage. It's not a video game. Close with this verse, James 3. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle. And Solomon is exhibiting this. And next chapter, we're going to read about God giving him uh, just uh, extra doses of wisdom. And it's a very good chapter, which will later add to the heartbreak that Solomon messes it all up. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father, another night's lesson from your word. Thank you again. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.